and left yourself in Make good on a promise Never heard again If you lost and loaded You're broken down Bring all of your trouble Come down, down Hey guys, and welcome to Kaisis a podcast about living our new life in the New Covenant Age. Our podcast name comes from two Greek words, kaine kitesis, which mean new creation. I'm your co-host, Osvaldo Valdez, and let me welcome Pastor Todd Bordeaux. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's good to be with you again after, what was it, Osvaldo, about five weeks or so? Maybe, yeah. I'm, I lost track after all my finals and getting married and all those things. I've lost track of time faster. So it's about about a month for sure. You probably don't even know what day it is half the time, right? Oh, no. Well, I got back to work now, so I'm kind of forced to like know what day it is or else nothing gets done. That's true. Well, uh, you're married now, so you're ready yes. to write a book. You're ready to write a book on marriage, right? Oh, yeah. I'm already halfway through the book, and yeah. I'll let you know when I finish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, need, we need more of this. Oh, um, yeah. No, but yeah, I got married, and it's been, it's been wonderful. And, and thank, thank you, Pastor, for being part of such a, such a big part in that, and me making it very thankful. That, that was a great wedding. Uh, two sides of the family, very different from each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very different. Mexican and in, in Arkansas, family from Arkansas. So it, it was a fun mix, though. It was. Well, let's get going. We, as we announced before we took the break, uh, we are going to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to introduce it and the first four Beatitudes tonight. So let's talk first about the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. For one, it's the longest sermon that Christ preaches in the entire Bible. So that in itself shows you it's important. The book of Matthew has five discourses, and, and Matthew is, is organized around those five, and this is obviously the first of the five. And so we are introduced into the entire new covenant, the entire work of Christ, what he came to do, is summarized here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the ethic for the new covenant church is given here in the Sermon on the Mount. So when we consider it's important, there's a quote by John Stott. He wrote, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, hmm. and, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Hmm. <laughs> so, and we're we're going to see in the coming months that much of the American conservative church actually are rejecting the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount for something else. Mm. And we'll let that unfold as we move through it. But tonight we're going to look at the importance of biblical theology and understanding the sermon. When we use the term biblical theology, we mean the progress of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, specifically how the new covenant is a fulfillment of the old covenant. So when you approach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you have to stop and consider the context. And in the first five chapters of Matthew, 
Jesus is presented as the new Moses and the new Israel. So remember that in the Old Covenant, the Exodus was the central event. And yet, when the prophets looked ahead to the New Covenant, they would use the Exodus as a model for another Exodus, a greater Exodus. And so expect somebody like Moses to deliver God's people like they were delivered from Egypt to a promised land through a wilderness all these motifs are spoken of as what the new covenant will be like, only the new covenant will be greater. It will be permanent. It won't end in judgment like the old covenant did. And so when we approach Matthew, we see all the parallels right away. Jesus is perse persecuted by a king, just like Moses was persecuted as a baby by a king. So when Jesus was a baby, they tried to kill him with the male babies of Bethlehem. When Moses was a baby, they tried to kill him with the male babies. And so the covenant mediators, the deliverers, had a very similar birth story. Um, like Moses, Israel, like Moses um, went into Egypt, and he was kept safe there for a time. Then he was called out of Egypt. Jesus is went into Egypt, was kept safe there for a time, and was called out of Egypt. Israel is baptized in the Red Sea, as Paul writes. Jesus is baptized in the water of judgment. These are judgment waters. Just like the Red Sea was judgment on the Egyptians, Jesus is in the judgment waters, suffering symbolically the punishment for the sins of his people. And then what happens in the Israel story? They're tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 being that connector. And so as we read Matthew, it's like we're rereading the Exodus story all over again. Yeah. And so what happens after all these events? Um, Jesus hasn't spoken yet. And he walks up on a mountain and he gives his first sermon. Moses goes up a mountain to receive the word of God. And that is the constitution for the old covenant, the law of God. Jesus goes up on a mountain and now he speaks of the new covenant that he brings with his blood. Old Moses, new Moses. Old Israel, new, new Israel. Old Exodus, new Exodus. And so everything is leading to this sermon that Jesus is the new Moses and he's going to speak about the new Exodus, how one enters this new kingdom that he's bringing people to, what this kingdom will look like, how his kingdom people will live. And so when we approach the Sermon on the Mount, it really is helpful to consider yeah. biblical theology. So what excites you about the biblical theology of this and in general in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, Pastor, I like to think of biblical theology in like in like like a book set that I, that I have. It's one of those books that like, you know, the spine of the of the book is part of a picture. And it isn't until you have the whole book set that you can see like a whole like a whole beautiful picture that the that the set kind of general theme of the of the book. Like I have a the, the series is called The Inheritance Cycle. It's like a Lord of the uh, the Rings esque type book, 
So like it, it when you put them all together, it's just a bunch of dragons flying around. But it's funny because I only have um, two books um, that are like hardcover, and then the rest I have them in my digital copy. So it's very incomplete and awkward. But if so, that's if we think about it in those terms, I've, biblical theology allows us to see the big picture. And when we divorce, you know, the Sermon of the Mount from the big picture, then you have my current book set, an incomplete dragon picture that just looks very awkward. And I just kind of hide them in my bookshelf. But what really excites me, Pastor, is that once we have that big picture in mind, kind of what we've been talking about in our whole series, you know, what the kingdom of God is as promised from the Old Testament and reaching its climax here in our story, then we see like a beauty, you know, in in a, a beauty, a glory and the Sermon of the Mount that, that gets lost sometimes in, in, in the way that it's taught today. And, and, it, it, and it's so important that as we were commenting a little bit before we started, that even Paul sees, you know, in, in, in his letter to the Ephesians, sees probably implicitly the Sermon of the Mount as a means by which Christ teaches us. In, in talking to the, to the Ephesians, he says, um, exhorting them and reminding them of what Christ has taught them. Yeah. And if this is such a huge portion of his teaching, you know, chapters dedicated, you know, Jesus's words um, to teach his disciples, teach future believers. I mean, for Paul and for all of us, this is a huge moment in human history where the Messiah has come down to teach us about the kingdom and teach his people how to live in it. Yeah. And even the way it's presented, Jesus opens his mouth. Mm. You know, it's like we've been waiting. Yeah. What is he going to say? He hasn't mm -hmm. spoken. He hasn't um, preached. Mm -hmm. And now is this first sermon. And so the parallels with Israel and Moses are very easy to see. They're very clear. Moses goes up the mountain. He hears the word of God from the Lord and then delivers it. Jesus goes up the mountain. Now he's about to deliver the word of God um, to the people. Both introduce the covenant. Moses introduces the old covenant. Jesus introduces the new covenant. But you're really missing it if you stop at the parallels and you miss the contrasts. Because it's really the contrast which unlocks what's happening here. Because when you go back to Moses receiving the law, Moses went up the mountain alone. Um, the people were not allowed to get close to the mountain. They were told to keep their distance. And so when God appeared on Mount Sinai, he appeared in the midst of fearful signs, thunder and lightning and the noise of a trumpet that was dreadful. These are terrifying judgment signs. And the people were told if they touch the mountain, they'll die. Hmm. That's how the first, the old covenant came. Uh, the law, the covenant that was the law of God to Israel. Now, Jesus goes up the mountain and anyone who wants to is allowed to go up with him. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not any less wonderful than God appeared in the Old Covenant on Mount Sinai. He is God in the flesh. And yet people are invited to come up and sit with him on the mountain. You can't help but notice the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, the law comes down with promises of curses and a lot of talk of judgment. Jesus speaks of grace. There's no fearful signs. There's no telling people, if you get too near me, you're going to be killed. 
And so you have to do justice to the stark contrast between the giving of the law and the Sermon on the Mount, both on mountains. Hmm. So what do we do with this contrast? Well, one mistake, and obviously we don't think our listeners would make this, is that you have two different gods. Hmm. And of course, Marcion made this mistake early in the early church. You have a god of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, and then a much more gracious god in the New Covenant, New Testament. The other um, answer is you could say, well, God relaxed his standards. In the Old Covenant, he had very strict standards. In the New Covenant, he relaxed his standards. But that's a very dangerous position also because it makes God less than holy. God cannot change his character nor his holiness. And so the answer is found in what we've seen in the first four chapters leading up to this is that Jesus has come to fulfill the law for his people. In the baptism, and um, as he's baptizing, he's, the waters of judgment are being poured on him because it's a baptism of repentance. He didn't need to repent for his sins. He was symbolically uh, repenting for the sins of his people. And then in the wilderness temptations, Jesus passes the test. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus, that's why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy each time in the temptations, because he's the true Israel. And so he's our righteousness. We don't have to follow the law to be righteous. Jesus will follow the law. And Jesus would take the penalty for our sin and fulfill the covenant of works. He will fulfill the law. So now Jesus can speak of grace because the law's demands have been met. God hasn't changed his demands. The point is that Jesus has fulfilled the demands. Mm -hmm. And so now that the curse has been taken care of and he has fulfilled righteousness, um, he is the righteous one. Now he can say, come up to the mountain. Come and listen. You don't have to stay away. The law's demands have been met. So you have to see the law-gospel contrast here in the Sermon on the Mount when you compare it to Moses. Moses said, you must obey the law to receive God's blessings. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's those who cannot follow the law. So you see the contrast very clearly. Mm -hmm. And so Luther has a great quote. Martin Luther wrote, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, this is a delightful, sweet, and genial beginning genial beginning of his sermon. For he does not come like Moses or a teacher of law with alarming and threatening demands, but in the most friendly manner with enticements and allurements and pleasant promises. No. So how important is it to hold this law-gospel contrast to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Pastor, I think it's, it's I mean, it's its everything. It, we, we can't see the Sermon on the Mount as like some sort of like a copy and paste where like Jesus is like, you know, just reinstating the law. I think that completely, that completely misses the point. And I think something that we've been talking about throughout this podcast is something that the law is, first of all, anticipatory in nature. I mean, when, when we're reading the Bible as a narrative, as a story, 
we see that even even from like the very beginning, it's always pointing forward to a figure, to something better, something glorious. Even when the law was given, it was pointed to something better and something glorious. And and if we make the mistake of looking at the Sermon of the Mount as like synonymous to the law, then it's just it just leaves the audience with complete frustration. Then then the gospel is nothing more than just further frustration. But that's completely the opposite. I mean, these are called gospels. These are, these are called good news because they're exactly that, exact good news. That which the law promised pointed towards, it's finally come. So when we miss the point, you know, of not dividing these things, of just making the Sermon of the Mount just a series of rules or some sort of conditional statements, then we make the mistake of leaving, you know, the Christian people in frustration. And it's completely the opposite. When we realize that what we're reading here is gospel, we, 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 we consequently receive, you know, the gospel, joy, the good news. And I think, I think that's, that's a central, central um, part of, of, of our interaction with, with the Sermon on the Mount is, is exactly that, this distinguishing it from the law, but not so much that it's completely unrelated, right? I, I know that's not what you're trying to say. Like, these are two completely different stories, um, nor are they two completely different gods, but rather this is one story where the law was pushing us towards the coming of the Messiah, and the Messiah has finally come. Yeah, it's well put. And then just imagine the, the Jews were used to thousands of years of Moses bringing the law, what God requires. I mean, so, it, it, exactly. I mean, it's interesting because, like you mentioned, I mean, in, in, in the mountain with Moses, imagine even their, their initial interaction with God when he was giving the law was with thunder and fire from heaven, you know? People couldn't even approach, like you said, they were going to die. But here, Jesus is welcoming people. So, like, like you said, we have to understand like the complete sharp contrast in approach, um, and what's happening here, and it's and it's glorious to the to the person who 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 is you know like seeing what's happening, you know. Yeah, and you have to imagine what the Jews would have been expecting because of thousands of years hearing Moses and the law, and Jesus opens his mouth and hears finally the sermon. What does God require? What would they be expecting? Well, they would probably expect him to expand even more on the law. And what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. That just is so strange. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the first words are not commandments. They're blessings. Yes. And these blessings are spiritual blessings whether they're some of them for this life or the life to come, they're both sa saving blessings. And so the first blessing is pronounced on those who cannot keep the law. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to admit that you cannot obey God. And so think of the contrast. Moses said, blessed are those who obey the law. Jesus says, blessed are those who admit they cannot obey the law. So they are certainly hearing something they weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. And so blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, the context would be mourning for sin. For their own sin, for the sin of the world, the sin of Israel, that they need to deliver. They can't deliver themselves. Blessed are the meek. Those are those not proud of their works, not proud of themselves as if they are worthy of God's grace or blessings. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, think of the contrast. Not 
Deuteronomy uh, 28 says, blessed are those of you obey, blessed are you if you obey all this law. Yeah. Jesus says, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the law was to bring them to this point. The law was to show them that they could not obey it to please God, to be, to earn salvation. And so they were to hunger and thirst for what they did not have. And so if the law did its job, then you were hungering and thirsting for what you lacked. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who yeah. come empty handed to Christ to receive from him what they cannot produce. And so the importance of holding a law gospel contrast is really seen here in the first four blessings. What a way to start the sermon. Any comment on these four blessings? Yeah, you, ma you made a kind of comment that reminded me of something. You, you said that, you know, what were the Jewish expectation when Jesus was opening his mouth? And, and we, something that we have to understand is like even, even amongst the Jews, I mean, the subject of the law was a huge controversy. It was a huge debate. There were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And each one of them had a different approach to the law, different understanding of the law. And the Pharisees were obviously the most dominant group as to how the law was to be understood. So you can imagine, maybe, like, right, this is, is implied, but it probably probably happened since they're major opponents of Jesus throughout his ministry. But they were there expecting to hear, you know, what 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 side is Jesus going to take? You know, what's his take on the law? And he, like you said, he completely, like, blinds him, you know, um, completely surprises him because he goes completely different route. And for for individuals who were so concerned with with what, what can be summarized as like outward workings of, of 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 righteousness, of appearing righteous, looking like you're fasting, look, extravagant prayers, you know, whatnot. But look at the words of Jesus. You know, his audience is completely different than the audience that the Pharisees are looking for. His expectations are completely distinct than the expectations of the Pharisees. Um, and and it's interesting because. The Pharisees and, and I guess all the people who thought they understood the law, they they probably felt completely left out, Pastor, when they were when they were hearing Jesus' words. And it's funny because it was probably the tax collectors, the prostitutes, everyone who was hearing this, right? His, the, obviously, the disciples were there, the fishermen, everyone, everyone else who nobody would have expected. They're the ones that could better relate with the first few words of Jesus. And yeah. once again, it, it's meant it's meant to to bring to the forefront that there's nothing that we can bring to the table. Exactly. Except to embrace the Messiah. And I think that's such like powerful and beautiful and glorious words. Yeah, and we'll talk about it in a moment, getting this wrong. I'll ask you about that. But notice the rewards in the first four also. Um, those who come to Christ for salvation, they shall see God, they shall inherit the earth, they shall be comforted, and they shall be satisfied. You see that in the gospel there are already and not yet promises some promises happen right away when we come to christ we're comforted we're satisfied we've been forgiven but we look ahead we will inherit the earth that's for the return of christ we will see god that's for the return of christ so some look at that through faith we've already entered um, the new covenant the blessings promised in the old but some we await. And so the rewards are split between some that we have now simply for believing that Christ won for us 
and some waiting at the end of this journey um, to get to the promised land. And so the blessings are ours no matter what happens in life. Notice, you know, Ephesians 1, 3 speaks of every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. So these blessings are given freely to sinners who come to God for salvation, trusting in Christ. Like you said, they bring nothing to the table, but they simply cling to the one who can save them. So the worst thing we can do is make the Beatitudes another law that Jesus is laying down. As if he's saying, okay, you've already seen the law in the Old Testament, what God requires. Here are four more things God requires. That you live a whole life of meekness, etc., etc. Instead of inviting people to come and, as you said, lay a hold of the Savior by simply admitting your need. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins with the very clear gospel. It is grace from beginning to end. Can you think of some examples in your life where you've either heard or read of people getting this wrong? Yeah, I mean, I can think of a few. One, one has to do with when you, when you come at it with no biblical theology, all you have is like moralism. This is just kind of a list of things to do. Like this becomes kind of a new new Ten Commandments. And, and although that, that doesn't sound wrong because Jesus doesn't say anything really bad. If you do these things, they're, they're actually very good things, right? Um, but you, you missed the point because, I, because like Christ is speaking the thing, these things in context of the kingdom of God, meaning that an outsider can't do these things. Something special has to happen, right? God has to, God has to pour out his spirit in you and you have to be transformed by Christ, you know, to, to live out these things right a, a new life a better life a glorious life in his kingdom um so i, I think there the one way that i've heard it wrong is just to to preach it without context as if this is just a to-do list i've heard pastors um preach this almost to parents in a way like you know you're supposed to be teaching your children's this but when you like once again these are not bad things but when you divorce them of their context and they, they they have no no eternal meaning they have no 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 spiritual value because it's all because once again this sermon right is done within the context of the kingdom of God coming. Um, so that's the first one. The second the second way that I've heard it wrong is people some like kind of I guess like maybe I, I forgot who, but I remember hearing this and and, and it threw me off. Like I, I just didn't like it, it. It threw me off. But now I realize why it threw me off. One, it, like secondly, it's a it's it's an intensification of the law. Jesus is making the law harder. So as to persuade people to turn to him. So meaning that the Sermon of the Mount is has no practical value other than to turn people to Jesus. So you're not so these are not literal commandments. They're just supposed to make you feel, in other words, extra guilty for the stuff you can't do. Right. And then turn to Jesus. And then th that, that that turns the Sermon of the Mount into something completely other than than what it is, the gospel. Right? So it it like, like it once it turns it into the law, pretty much. It's just meant to lead you to Christ, but it has no practical value in your life. And and once again, when like when you divorce it from its context, that this is this is this is the ethics of the kingdom. This is these are these are the benefits, the reaping, you know, the fruits of the kingdom, then then you have nothing other than some sort of like rhetoric. And and, and that's not the point of Matthew. And that's clearly not the point of uh, of, of Jesus uh, as as you see it, you know, unfold throughout his ministry. Yeah, I've even heard um people use it in a more psychological sense that, you know, if you need these blessings in your life, 
he need to learn to relax and be meek. Oh, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and then you'll, you know, you'll see God in some kind of strange, you know, spiritual sense or, you know what I'm saying? You, you just need yeah. to put these into practice. Then these promises will be yours, sort of like a Joel Osteen type thing. You know, it's funny, Pastor, now that you mention it, you know, the first time I ever heard the poor in spirit used in a in a gospel way, like, wow, like this is preaching the gospel and not in terms of law or moralism, was actually from a Pentecostal pastor. I was invited to a church near my house and and because I like this girl and she invited me to the her, to her church. So I went. And there were two services, and she went to the second service, but I went to the first service with my cousin and Abraham. And um, it's funny because he preached on this passage, and, and he was talking about that the type of people that God is looking for is not the rich because they have nothing to offer him. God is not interested in what your works or anything like that. God is looking, right, for hearts that are contrite, that are just willing to embrace the Messiah. And he says, like, that's, that's, that's the poor in spirit. And all of you who are here today, if you're here today, you're poor in spirit and you're blessed. Very, very interesting. Just like, like, like take to it that I've never heard in my life. And it was gospel. I didn't feel threatened. I didn't feel anything. I felt actually like, wow, reassured. And it was very, very interesting. But yeah, that was actually the first instance I ever heard it, you know, like pointing towards the, the right direction towards the gospel. Wow. He nailed it, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And looking back, you just, I, it just came to my mind. I was like, wow, that happened. But yeah. So to sum up, the Sermon on the Mount comes graciously, unlike the law, because Jesus came to fulfill the demands of the law. So God's holiness does not change, but God's holiness is fulfilled. His requirements are fulfilled by a substitute, by a representative of us. And so Jesus can say, come on up into God's presence. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to prove yourself. You need to trust in the one who came to save you and admit your need. And so Jesus does what Israel failed to do. Jesus inherits the promised land for his people, and this will be eternal. So these words from the mountain are our wonderful, gracious words. And God would have been perfectly righteous if he would have forbidden people to ascend with him up the mountain, the Son of God, um, because God is holy and we are not. But because God is merciful, and he saw that we could not obey him, his son invited us up. And then he told us how to find blessing only through faith in him. That's how it all begins. Um, that's where the whole sermon starts. It starts with a presentation of the gospel. Yeah. They're all, all words of grace. Now he'll move into what the new covenant Christian will look like. Um, now that the age of Israel has ended and the new covenant um, has begun. So we will see the ethics of the kingdom. But before that, he starts with how to enter the kingdom. And it's all gospel. Any any uh, final thoughts? Yeah. No, I just, you know, like like, like you said, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that that Jesus here is introducing, you know, the gospel and, and and once again like like I, I always like to think in terms of like narrative and i think that's that, that's all biblical theology really is we have to understand that this is just part of the story 
And and I would encourage our, our listeners to see the Bible like that, you know, to see Jesus' ministry as part of our largest story. Because once we once we contextualize, you know, Jesus' ministry as the coming of the Messiah, as the coming of the promised kingdom, then this particular event becomes such a like it's a, it's a, it's the climax, you know, of of human history, of 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 God coming the flesh, teaching, you know, humbly, inviting his own creation to his feet to learn under him. And it's just a really just a beautiful, beautiful and glorious picture. So in the coming weeks, we'll look at obviously the next four blessings, but also the different ways people have approached the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at the three basic ways. You mentioned one of them at the beginning. And we'll look at um, how to understand some of the more difficult passages and how it all relates to living the Christian life now. Um, so there, there's a lot here. I'm excited to get to it and uh, you. hope you'll all join us for this journey. And thanks for coming back with us. Oh, you rich and high above All of those and wind I love All you burn and broken down All of your troubles Come lay them down Come lay them down Come lay them down Come lay them down